Amen. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, team, band, for leading us. So glad you're here. If you're online, we're glad that you're there and that we could uh, gather in these different places. We are one body, and it's so important that we remember that. Um, you know, I, I know there's a fair amount of tension in our, in our culture, not news to you, right? I mean, the tension gets thicker, and then something else happens, and we think, oh, it's even thicker. And of course, we're not immune to that because we are people who live and breathe and walk and are a part of this culture. And some of the tension that uh, I just want to mention before we get into a couple announcements and then, then the series is, is around the issue of masks and, and how we gather as a church even or how you engage in your life out in, in society, restaurants and grocery stores and all of that. And there's some of us that wear them all the time and there's some of us that take them off when we can. And there's some of us that are philosophically opposed and there's some of us that are uh, medically unable to, to wear them. And so the, the variety is deep and significant and that culture tension exists in our church too. So I'm sure there are some folks that would love to gather with us, but no, uh, some of y'all sing without masks and they, they're afraid to be around. Um, and I've seen you sing, you spit like, you know, a hockey player. So I'm kidding a little bit though, some of you, um, <laughs> And some would love to uh, participate and be here but can't wear masks even in our midst. And so this, of course, is why we invested heavily in the online thing. But at this point in the pandemic, we're all feeling like, ah, oh, I just miss being around people. And so I just want you to know this, that our church leadership and staff, we are continually sort of asking these questions and trying to figure out how do we manage it as a church body and as a family and we as a church body want to be very sensitive to those who are the most vulnerable. We also want to be sensitive to those who are trying to live out their faith in uh, unique and, and w ways of strength. And so it's on our minds. And uh, we're, we're always trying to wrestle with that and figure out how we move forward. It's one of the reasons why we invested in our time at the park, you know, the, for the last two uh, worship services at the park. That obviously is a lot more expensive than a building we're already paying rent on. Uh, but we rent that place and, you know, hire the sound system and the techs and all that so that we can gather together. And if you're online, and uh, especially for those of you here too, know that in two weeks we'll gather again at the park. I mean, it's, it's, we're getting close, right, to where we can't go outside anymore. It's going to get a little chilly. And it even got a little chilly last Sunday, you know, to be honest. So, uh, we moved it up in the day. We'll be there at 11 a.m. two weeks from this Sunday. That's October the 4th. And so uh, that messes with our, you know, dinner time. So we're going to have the food trucks there, but they're going to be there after church, okay? And uh, I, was, I was preaching, some people were still getting tacos, so I think that's great. And so we'll have some folks there that will be waiting on you for when church is all done, and they'll be ready to feed you. You can hang out as long as you like. If you're online and you're kind of afraid to be around a crowd, you should know that the setting is very open. It's very, uh, very amenable to people who want to be socially distant, and, uh, and it works. You don't have to get as close to anybody that you don't want to. And some folks come and they set up chairs, um, you know, kind of far away and distant, and it works out great. And so we would love for you to be a part of that. But we want you to know that that issue, we see it. It's in our church too. And we're wrestling with it and trying to figure out how to accommodate all and be gracious to all. And my hope is that you are doing the same thing. My hope is that you're doing the same thing with the people that you interact with. 
with the people that you cross paths with. Knowing and believing that, ah, I don't know the whole story. I don't know what they're struggling with. I don't know what their fears are. I don't know what their concerns are. And so grace must prevail always. And so I hope that you love like that, as we do, and fail all the time doing it. Uh, out on the table, out front, is a card that looks like this. And, uh, and I point this out because there's some stuff in here about how to get connected and how to jump into stuff that's happening this fall at the church. Some of it virtual, some of it in person, but we want you to build some relationships and build some connections. Uh, Diana McKeever is offering a, a parenting class on Thursday night. It's kind of a new thing that we're doing. Uh, it's a limited time. It kind of, we, we had, there was an intro week this past week, but really the thing kicks off this Thursday night. And Diana would love to have you here. And if you're thinking, I would love to participate in that, but I, I need childcare for my kids or something like that, uh, email us at info, info at castleoaks.org, and we'll see what we can do to take care of that. Our hope is that you get connected and that you see some people and that you can uh, take part of that curriculum. There's a couple dinners that are coming up early October. The McAfee's who are here today are going to be offering some, uh, some food at their place. Uh, it's actually a pasta-making class. So uh, that info's on here, and, and so, I, you know, you should think about that. Um, and a few others coming up, the Windsors and the Cipperlies and the Holmans and then the Vares as well. And they're spread out throughout the fall. So if you would love to, if you're missing people and you would love to get together with a small group of folks and not a crowd, this is a great way to do it. So pick this up, studies, all that kind of stuff. We want you to stay informed. And if you're watching online, drop us a note at info and we'll get this card to you and be sure that you have a chance to, to get it. So we're starting this new series. It's called Pact. It's all about the, the letter that Paul writes called Ephesians in the New Testament. And uh, we're going to spend uh, several weeks going through it and just taking some time to, to dig in. Um, Ephesians is by far, pound for pound, chapter for chapter, the most rich, deep, theologically practical book in the entire New Testament. I mean, Romans is incredible. I mean, you know, you hate to rank books of the Bible, but if you're going to rank them, if you're going to say, look, we're going to take a look at some of the verses here, and, and we want you to mine some good stuff out of Ephesians, it's a great place for you to spend some time in Scripture. And so our hope is as we go through this series that you sit down at your house some, some days of the week, maybe three or four days of the week, I mean, maybe seven, right, overachievers, but at least a few days of the week, and you open up Scripture because there is no replacement for allowing God to speak to you through the word of God. No replacement at all. Study after study after study about growth and knowing Jesus and walking with God says the most important thing you can do, it's not go to church, it's not even worship, the most important thing you can do to have your life formed after the life of Jesus is to give scripture a chance to do its thing on your life and your heart in a reflective way. That's it. If you were going to do any spiritual habit and commit to it, it would be that one habit. And if you said, you know, Phil, all week, I, I mean, I spent time with God. I didn't have time to go to church. I would say, good for you. That's great. That's awesome. That's good. Keep it up. I mean, I'd love to see you. It'd be great. But you're doing the thing that we believe helps you become more like Jesus in the way you live, in the way you love, in the way you act. And so take some time. Read through it. We're going to go through it kind of slow. We're going to pick out things that are important. We think they're important, but you're going to find things that the Holy Spirit just impresses upon you. And you can read Ephesians all by yourself 
and understand it, add the, the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's a supernatural thing, and it's good. And so we're calling the series Packed for a few reasons, and we'll kind of uh, unpack it, uh, no pun intended, as we go. But one of the reasons is because of all the things that are packed into it. But also one of the reasons is because we want you to think about the things that you're carrying with you and the things that you've packed to go through this journey called life. Anybody miss traveling? You miss traveling? The people that I've talked to that have engaged back into traveling thought they missed traveling until they got on a plane or, you know, all the things that they thought that they missed. The traveling's a little different now. I miss what traveling was. And, and when I pondered this, I thought, you know, what I really miss more than anything else is having plans. That's what I miss. You know, the things that we used to look forward to. When we would plan a vacation, I mean, the vacation is a blast and doing it is a great experience, but there's a sense of you while you're living it, it feels like it's almost over. It's the thing that's on the calendar that's two weeks out or three weeks out or, you know, sometimes six months or eight months out that you think, I can't wait to do that. I mean, the joy that we get to experience when we have these things to look forward to This is one of the losses that we're all experiencing through the pandemic is this dissipation of of plans. Now, when we get ready to take a trip, Donna and I are back when we travel a little bit more with the boys. The question that we would ask is this question. Say it with me. What does it say? You would ask this question. Are you packed? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? And then if the boys were, of course, of an age, one of the things we tried to do when they were growing up is teach them to pack for themselves. You know, it was after the second or third trip, maybe they're five, six years old, maybe we're going to grandma's. Donna would be packing all their stuff. And Donna, of course, has to pack for three. And I have to pack, well, let's be honest. Donna packs for four. And I pack for, no, no, I just fill the car with gas. That's what I do. And so she thought, this is, this is for the birds. I'm not doing this. I'm learning something about being a parent now. So I'm going to teach the boys how to pack for themselves. Eventually, I'll teach Phil to pack for himself. And then I'll just have to pack for one. And so she would ask the boys, are you packed? How many of you pack at least a week before a trip? Let me see your hands. Raise them up. Online? Online, you might not know this. I can see you too, okay? And so there's a little window into your house. I know it's creepy. Get some new pajamas, but okay. So how many of you pack at least a week ahead of time? How many of you pack hours before you leave? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many of you always pack too much? Let me see your hands. You always pack too much. How many of you never pack enough? Anybody? Never pack enough. Be honest. Let me see a hand. Okay. So good. So are you packed? These are the skills that we teach our kids and when we pack and when we carry things with us every now and then, this is the fun graphic for the series, we pack a little too much. And when we pack too much, we end up lugging it through our life. Sometimes we have much more than we need. And of course, the metaphors abound through this series. When you're carrying stuff through life that is much more than you need, oh my gosh, well, it slows you down, doesn't it? Not only does it slow you down, you get tired. We, I did some long hiking on Monday, and we were very, very specific about what we wanted in the backpack. Why? Why well, got to carry this all day long? How many of you pack too much? How many of you are carrying too much? Maybe old history, 
maybe some ideas that you were taught about church when you were growing up that you think either aren't true or maybe they aren't useful anymore. Maybe some old lies that you were told about yourself, who you are and what you're worth that somebody very important in your world impressed upon you, but you still carry it. And you carry it into every relationship you have. You carry it into every evaluation that you sit under. You carry it with you every day and they just sneak up from behind and just nip at your heels. You're carrying too much. When we go on a trip and we have our stuff, we call it luggage, right? But when we go through life and we carry too much, what do we call it? Yeah, we call it baggage. That's right. And some of us have some baggage. You have some baggage that is relational, theological, spiritual. And that baggage, you're being weighed down by it. As we go through this, this series in Ephesians, my hope is this, is that you'll, you'll take the word of God and the things that you believe and the things that you carry with you spiritually and you'll lay it against the truth of Scripture. Because if you were around anybody who followed Jesus or anybody that had ideas about God, we all picked up some ideas about God that aren't very useful, maybe aren't true, and keep us from understanding the richness of God's mercy and grace in powerful ways. This baggage. And you don't need to take it with you. You should lay it down. And my guess is, is that you'll find some truths in Ephesians that will replace that baggage with capital T truth. You know what that means? Capital T truth. It's, it's true for all people, all times, all places. It's not cultural. It's not relevant. It's not something that sounds good or tickles our ears, as the Apostle Paul would say. It's just true. It was true for Paul when he wrote it, and it's true for me and you today in the year 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, the most caustic election that the country has ever seen. It's true for all of us. And so maybe you've got some baggage that you want to get rid of. But the question that we'll wrestle with is this one, is are you packed? Do you have what you need? Do you have the proper essentials? Maybe you'll take some stuff out. I hope that you will put some stuff in. But this little letter to the Ephesians is going to help you do that. And we'll unpack a bunch of it, but it will be your time with God, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach you that will help shape and form you the most. So our hope is that you open up your spiritual suitcase, open up your Bible, and dig in a bit. When Paul starts the letter, he does a greeting and he does kind of a salutation. You can read that on your own, but then he immediately gets down to business and this is what he says. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we're gonna say this verse together, okay? Well, so you say it with me. You're not gonna repeat me. We'll just read it all together and we'll do it right now. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's verse three of chapter one. And this is the kind of verse that if you're sitting at home and you're opening up your Bible and you're gonna read it, many of us would read this and think, this sounds like preamble. You know what I mean? This sounds like introduction. This sounds like something he's gonna say before he says what he really wants to say. It's not. It's not at all. 
It's, in fact, deeply, thoughtfully rich with theology that you and I need to carry with us. I mean, if you're living a hurried and distracted life, this is a verse you rush past. But don't. Don't. And so, you know, since I have the mic on, we won't, right? We'll walk through it together. And as you see what Paul writes and what he says and what he means, you'll catch a word immediately, probably because I put it in, in yellow, that will feel like a word that is overused, overdone, and misunderstood in our culture. This word blessed. We think it means fortunate. We think it means I have something you don't. We think it is a comparative word, and it's not. In fact, when Paul says this, this, this word is so deeply meaningful and so thoughtful, it, it might even shift at least a little bit. For some of you, change wholesale the way you see God's relationship to you and with you. This word blessed in the Greek is this. This is the Greek writing, the Greek alphabet. This is the transliteration. And the word, well, you'll think of a few English words that are similar or close to it. And it's pronounced maybe a little bit differently. Eulogio. Say it with me. Eulogio. That's the Greek word. You sounded like a Greek lexicon. My goodness, that was good. Eulogio. It's a good word. This word means to take in the context of a relationship, somebody in your presence, and say to them, you have worth, you have value. I see how you're made and put together, and I see the good that's in it. That's what it means, eulogio. The blessing translation is, is a good translation. It's just our culture has misused and misappropriated the word. The word means that I will help you understand some things about you that even though you have a mirror and even though you have relationships, you might not even see about yourself. And I'll call it out and I will name it. What word comes to mind when you see the, the transliteration? Eulogy, that's right. Eulogy. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've had a few funerals. Yesterday, we had a funeral for Darla Dobbs. Uh, sweet, gentle, assertive, opinionated, thoughtful, selfless Darla Dobbs. Do you see what I just did there? And we did that yesterday for Darla. Many of us did. In fact, uh, it... What we did for Darla is the thing most preachers don't like to do is we had an open mic in the room and allowed people from the audience to come up and share. It makes you nervous just thinking about it, doesn't it? I mean, how long did that go, right? Everybody's wondering, how does that work out? But it was a beautiful, beautiful time where people got to stand up from their perspective and say, this is who Darla was. In fact, every funeral I've been a part of since the beginning of the pandemic it's been about that word, eulogio, this word that says, 
I want you to understand how God created you, that you've been made in his image, that you are beautiful in his sight, that how God created you is unique among people, that he knew you before you were formed and he knit you together. And the way he knit you together is exactly how he intended you to be. The thing that you see and notice about yourself that you hate or dislike, God says, oh, that breaks my heart that she feels this way, that he thinks this about himself. I put that specifically there so that he could reflect my glory to people who are around him or her. Eulogio, it's a beautiful word. And it means this blessing that God gives. This is what God intended. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with how many spiritual blessings? Oh, he, he doesn't withhold. Some of you have this impression that God is just waiting, you know, till you quit being selfish or till you quit being pouty or you quit being demanding to give you what you deserve, what you need. That's not how God is. God gives it freely, without measure. Every spiritual blessing, that's what he does. This is your question, isn't it? Your question is the same as everybody else's question. Am I good enough? Do I have what it takes? Can I show up? Can I get it done? Is it worth it? You carry this question into every relationship you have. How does he see me? How does she feel about me? You carry it into every job you've ever had. Can I do what they're asking? Can I accomplish it? Every evaluation meeting you've ever had, what will they say about me? Am I worth it? Again, the question that you have almost every day of your life is, am I good enough? And some of us get bowed up and allow proud, pride and, and, and being proud take over. And so we, you know, we make sure everybody knows we're good enough. And some of us allow self-deprecation to kind of take a front row seat. And we make sure everybody knows we know we're not good enough. So you don't have to tell me. And we bat back and forth between the two. And in the middle of all that, Paul is telling you in verse 3 of Ephesians, God has already said, you are. He's already said so. In fact, he's the final authority on the subject. What anybody else thinks doesn't really matter. Anybody else who has an opinion also has an agenda, and their agenda isn't for you. God has one agenda, and he is for you. One agenda. It emanates from his love. He can do nothing else but love. It's the center of his character. It's the center of his being. And everything he does flows from that. Everything. Even his anger. Everything. Eulogio is what God does. He blesses you. Some of you don't know that. And you walk around with a sense of inadequacy that riddles everything you think about who you are. And if you were having a suitcase and getting ready for this journey of life, 
this is the verse you would want to take with you to know and believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are enough and God has already said so. It's a big deal. It's all throughout scripture. Remember Jacob and Esau? Remember the blessing of the father, the one that was stolen inappropriately? Everything in scripture is centered around this idea. Remember the promise to Abraham? I will make you so that you will be a what? You will be a blessing to all people. This word has an Old Testament equivalent. It's called Barak. And God said, when he made everything and he made you, he said, it is good, and he blessed it. He made you and said, this is very good. And he blessed you. And he said, you are enough. We're not even out of verse 3 yet. Man, that's deep and rich and powerful. In fact, he finishes the verse by saying, we have been given every spiritual blessing, say it with me, in Christ. I grew up in a, in a church setting very similar to this, evangelical type church. And I was told that there would be a point in time in my life when I would invite Jesus into my heart. Anybody ever hear that language at church camp or something like that where you would invite Jesus into your heart? And I always thought that was a funny image. I just pictured little Jesus, you know, coming around to my little heart, knocking on it, you know, and open up the door and I got a little room in there and he's got a little cot and a bed and, you know, whatever he's got, kitchen, and Jesus is living in my heart, right? He's just living in my heart. And, you know, that's a cute image, but Jesus is pretty small. Invite Jesus into your heart. Paul would think that's hilarious. In fact, all through Ephesians and Colossians, and Romans, it's like Paul is saying, your God is too small. Ah, he lives in your heart. That's cute. God is not cute. God is a consuming fire. Your life, your life is enveloped. It is consumed by Christ. In fact, at one point he says, your life is hidden. It is hidden in Christ. In fact, Paul would say that unless you're coming to terms with the reality that Jesus is everything, Jesus before politics, Jesus before your own health, Jesus before your own fear, Jesus before your own priorities, Jesus before your anxiety, unless you have come to terms with what it means to be in Christ, then you haven't really begun to scratch the surface. And so all through the entire letter of Ephesians, you'll see this, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. Paul cannot imagine his life any other way at all. This is who he is and why he writes all the things that we need to understand. Verse three, and then he says this, moving on. This is big, a few verses together. We'll take it slowly, okay? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. All of the normal punctuation that you and I are used to seeing in English isn't present in the Greek. It's very different in the Greek. And 
Paul has this habit, in, especially in Ephesians, the first chapter, as having one big, long, run-on sentence. In fact, some people think that chapters 1, 2, and 3 is pretty much one sentence. Three chapters, because he just can't stop. And as he paints this broad picture, it requires you and me to sort of leave the little microscopic place of our world and rise up above and see it from a grander perspective. I think some of us have the impression that the drama of the world is playing out and we're watching from the stands the way we watch our favorite team play in a a championship game. And we're wringing our hands and we're wondering what's going to happen, how's this going to turn out, who's going to win, how's it going to work, and we're just riding it with all of the emotions of winning and losing. I think that's how we perceive what's happening in the world. How else could you explain the hand-wringing and the anxiety that people who follow Jesus have today? I get it. We're living through things that are unprecedented, things we've never been through. But when Paul writes these things in Ephesians, it's like he's saying, hey, hey, just, just, just take a minute. I know, I know the world is incredibly tense, messed up, filled with all kinds of possibilities for anxiety. But listen, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. God isn't making this up as he goes. God had a plan, and that plan is proceeding. I know, you have the same thoughts I have. This is a plan? Are you kidding me? What kind of plan is this? Well, if you knew, you would be God, wouldn't you? And so he says, from the beginning of time, God chose you. And then he says this. This is powerful. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. And all this has been in accordance with his pleasure and will. What's interesting about this, in ancient Jewish culture, there was no procedure for adoption. It didn't exist. If in my family, if my younger brother passes away as two girls, they become mine in ancient Jewish culture. I become their dad. There's no ceremony. Nothing has to be written. It's just how it occurs. In fact, you know, the family takes care of the family is the best way to understand that. That's Jewish. So when Paul talks about adoption, this is a strange thing for a Jewish learned man to be talking about. He's using this idea of Roman adoption to be very clear about our relationship with God. And he does it in Ephesians. No misses. This is deep and rich. And he does it in Romans. You've read it maybe in Romans where he talks about being adoption uh, as a process of coming into sonship. Roman law was incredibly specific. In Roman law, if you had a biological child, you could, as a parent, well, the mom had no rights. She was, didn't even have parental rights in the Roman culture. The dad had rights. Very patriarchal. And patriarchal wasn't just in the church. Patriarchal was through and through every culture in the ancient world. The dad had the right to, for a variety of reasons, mostly at his choosing, to terminate the relationship with that biological child. The dad had the right to say, you are no longer my son, you're no longer my daughter. He could do it at a variety of points. Most often it happened at a very young age. And when that happened, that child was then an orphan. That child was an orphan. Adoption in the Roman culture worked very differently than that. 
adoption worked this way. If I was a, a Roman gentleman, Roman citizen, and I had, you know, an estate, I had uh, means, I had things that I needed to take care of, I had a purview, you know, I had my world, my employees, all of that, I could engage in an adoption process. And when I engage in this adoption process, I choose. I choose a child to become my own. Most often it was a male, almost always, because a male could keep the family line intact. If I engage in a Roman adoption as a Roman male citizen, I choose this individual, legal process ensues. When the legal process is done, they belong to me. Listen close. They have a new identity. Their former name is gone. All their debts are gone. They belong to me as if they were biologically mine. Except it's stronger in the Roman culture than having a biological child. Because in the Roman adoption process, there is no provision for termination. They cannot be undone. I'm stuck with them. They're stuck with me for the rest of their life. This is why Paul uses this language of adoption in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. It's a powerful image. And if you're female and you're reading through this or you're reading through Romans and you think, sonship, I'm a daughter. You know, adoption, I guess I'm left out. This is what's so incredibly powerful about Paul's language. When you read any of these verses in context, it's incredibly clear that Paul is not talking about only the male Christians get to be adopted into the Christian family. Paul takes an image in the ancient culture that is deeply steeped in patriarchy and he completely blows it up. And he says, this isn't true just for men. This is true for women. This is the man who writes, in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. So when Paul writes this, he's using sonship, and they actually retranslated this in the NIV to say sonship. In the King James, it says just children, but it misses the powerful Roman legal language that says, now you belong, and it cannot be undone. And so the NIV, even though it's more modern, went back to this word to ensure that the Roman legal language was held intact. But it's not just for you dudes. Women are full heirs in the kingdom of God. When Paul writes this in the first century, the implications were unbelievable. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and her legacy of equality is deep and strong for gender equality. Who stands with her are people like the Apostle Paul. I know you can point to some verses that sound like the subjugation of women, but what happens here theologically is unequaled in church history. Unequaled. It's powerful that Paul would be saying that in fact all of the female followers of Jesus are adopted as Roman legal sons. It's amazing. 
And that's what he says. And it cannot be unchanged. And then he says this, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. It's powerful. And he goes on to say this, just a couple more verses. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And so you'll see in Ephesians, time and time again, this word grace, charis. And the word means that it is something that you have not earned that is given to you. And if we're not mistaken, Christians can take this word grace and imply that it means that God kind of hands us forgiveness. He hands us redemption. He gives it to us as a gift. And what you know about gifts is you get it on a day and you unwrap it and it belongs to you. It's yours. But this isn't what Paul's saying at all. It's almost like his in Christ phrase. It's so much more profound than this. When Paul writes about grace, he is giving us the impression, not that God gives us something from his hand, but that God gives us himself. And when he gives us himself, it is not transactional. It's not something that could be left or dropped or even misunderstood. God gives us his identity. And this is why he says, through the redemption, through his blood. This is what God has given you. So the moment that you begin to think, I don't have what I need, Paul would think, oh my goodness, have they they not seen? Do they not know? Have they not heard? God has given you, in fact, his very self. And these are the ideas that you and I forget. You forget them. And when you forget them, you begin tinkering with your salvation and trying to earn it, don't you? You begin trying to tinker with other people's salvation, trying to get them to agree with you and align with you. Oh, how foolish. You try to work out your own merit and worth. And God says, I already decided that issue. Already decided it. It's already done. And you forget what's in your suitcase. So what happens when you forget something that you packed? What do you do? Get a little nervous, get a little anxious. I mean, you think you packed it, right? You go to your suitcase and you look for it and you think, ah, oh, I know it's here somewhere. And you keep digging, you empty the whole thing out on the bed. And you say, I know, I, I know, I, I know I had it. I know I had it. But you thought about packing it and then you didn't. Oh, yeah, maybe it just happens with me because I'm, you know, over 50. But maybe it happens to you too. And so when you forget it, what do you do? What's the, what's the worst thing for you to forget? If you go to your suitcase and you think it's not here, what's the worst thing for you to forget? What is it? Right, your toothbrush. That's exactly right. Somebody said underwear. That's not true. I went four days once. <laughs> four days. We went on a trip recently. I forgot all my underwear and all my socks, except for what was on my body. I went four days and nobody would ever know. <laughs> except for Donna. She knew. You know, once you flip them and turn them inside out, then they kind of clean themselves and you just flip them again. Am I, telling, am I saying too much about this? But you forget your toothbrush. And you start to think, where's, you know, Where's Walgreens? Where's Walmart? You can't go without your toothbrush. You really can't. And so you start using your finger. You use your finger to brush your teeth. Who's used their finger to brush your teeth? Come on, be honest. Y'all are gross. I would never do that. That's nasty. (laughs) 
And then you, you start doing, you know, pondering the unthinkable. You know, you look at your spouse or your friend and say, hey, you know, <laughs> would you mind? And they're like, yeah, I would mind. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we kiss and stuff. Yeah, not the same. I mean, we make kids together. No, I don't care. You're not using my toothbrush. <laughs> when you forget your toothbrush, you know it. It's a problem until you fix it. How many ideas have we run through in just a few verses in Ephesians 1 that you've forgotten over the last six months and you left it behind as if it didn't matter? What would it be like if you began to remind yourself the depth and the power of God's love and approval for you, of you, about you? It's incredible. He says this. With all wisdom, understanding, he made known to us, this is good. What did he make known to us? The what? I mean, you have one big question, am I good enough? But your second question is, God, what do you want? Isn't it? How many of you have prayed that? God, what do you want? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Do me take that job or that job or marry him or marry her? What do you want? Paul says in this passage, he makes it very clear. God has made known the mystery of his will. Some of you are thinking, well, how come I don't know it? I don't know. I guess you're not reading the Bible. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he, say it with me, purposed in Christ. And it's to be put into effect completely. When? When the times reach their fulfillment. So what is it? Well, it's right there in Scripture. That there is a, an end to this plan, that it isn't chaos ad infinitum. It is absolutely moving toward a conclusion. And he has made known to us the mystery of his will. And this is what it is. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It's the last part of that passage, the very beginning of verse 10. This is his plan, to bring unity to all things. Boy, doesn't that sound good? Wouldn't you like that now? I would like that now. We get it in glimpses. We get it in pieces. It happens when you sit down with somebody and you share a part of yourself and they share a part of themselves and then you find out that there's some overlap and there's a piece of who God made you to be and who God made them to be that is in agreement and unity and it's a bit of heaven that you feel and experience. But he's going to bring unity to some things, right? No, what does it say? How many things? Come on, how many things? All things. Where? Where are these things? Well, they're in heaven now and they're on the earth. And it's going to happen again in Christ, under Christ. That's where it's going to happen. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And if you'll remember this, then I guarantee you will treat people differently. If you remember this, I guarantee that how you interact with others will change. What you post on Facebook is going to change. How you engage with your family or people at work and your anxiety is going to change as well. No, it's not going to go away. You live in the world, but you will begin to trust in God in a new and unique way if you believe this. Back in 2008, our boys were 12, 
and 14, Austin Carter. Austin's the oldest, he's 14. We lived at a house up in Parker and we decided that we were gonna um, rip off our house, the, the old splintery wooden deck, little tiny postage stamp of a deck and build a proper deck. You know, this is gonna be our summer project. And I had more uh, time than I had money. Had some vacations saved up and so I took some time off of work and began to do this project. And so I knew if, if I was gonna do this project and I hire a contractor, I need to do it right. So I needed plans and I needed the, the whole deal mapped out. I needed all the materials. You know, I didn't have time to, you know, piecemeal it over the summer. We were gonna take some time, about five, six weeks to build this thing, rip the old one off and put a new one in place. And so I had everything planned out, all the you know, the, the schematics of the entire deck and got permits, pulled permits from the you know, town of Parker, which is no small thing. And so we were doing this proper and doing it correct. And the boys were old enough that they were going to be my helpers. They were going to take care of business. They were going to be, you know, kind of junior, junior site dudes, you know, one, number one and number two. In fact, this is, uh, here's a picture for you. That's us starting. That's, that's Austin and Carter when they were, they were pretty little. And they're, they're grown men now, and they would be embarrassed I'm even showing this picture. But that was, uh, we're starting to dig holes. That was the first of about 22 holes in our backyard where we began to put the foundation, the concrete foundation for this deck and began to build it. We started in the middle of June, you know, when it's nice and cool in Colorado. And we finished up by, oh, near the end of July when it's even cooler, right? And so they were loving me. But this was the deal. They said, we'll help. I said, good, that's good. Yes, you will. Glad you want to. And we'll, we'll build this together. And so the days that we worked, it wasn't every day, but the days that we worked, we started and they would say, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do today? In fact, here's another picture of them. This one they would hate. So <laughs> that's the backsides of my boys right there. They, they were amazing. In fact, the truth is I couldn't have done it without them. I could not have done it without them. And they would say, what are we going to do today? And the reason they asked, what are we going to do today, is because they didn't know how to build a deck. I didn't either, but I had Googled a whole bunch of stuff. And so the plans were there. We had all the materials there. We spent at least half a day hauling materials from the driveway to the backyard for this thing. And we began to build. And we were done. We were going to have a beautiful maintenance-free deck that they would sit on for the next 10 years and remember what it was like. So, Dad, what are we going to do today? I'm in charge. I've got the plan. I know what we're going to do. And so that summer, they learned how to install a lag bolt. They learned how to put screws into wood. They learned how, how to pound a nail with authority. My boys learned how to use a level. They learned to not trust their eye and the slope of the ground to tell them that something was true. That's what they learned how to do. But on any given day, they had no idea what to do. They had to ask me every day, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? What's next, Dad? And I pull out the plans. This is where we're headed. This is what we're going to do. It's no different for me and you living out every day. Where are we headed? What are we going to do? God is working out the mystery of his will and he is going to bring unity to all things in heaven, on earth, and under Christ. Okay, that sounds great, but what is it? What does that mean? What do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked and the scriptures tell us very plainly and clearly, don't they? Here's what we're going to do today. 
Oh, we're going to love as if our life depended on it. I know, I know, but judge was at the top of my list. Yeah, I knew that. We're going to move that off the list. It doesn't even drop down to a lower number. It, it's off the list. It doesn't even belong on a list. So what are we going to do? We're going to love. We're going to love. We're going to build. We're going to get rid of systems that give advantages to people in power and people with wealth. Why? Oh, the kingdom of God is upside down. Read, read. It's in there. The kingdom of God is upside down. That's what we're going to do. You know what else we're going to do? We're going to eulogize. We're going to eulogize each other. But we're not going to wait until the day of the funeral. In fact, you need me to tell you what it means to be made in God's image. You need me to help you with that. And so our hope and our prayer is that as we live these things out every day, that we do a bit of what God will do at the final moment. We will bring unity to all things in heaven, on earth, under Christ. And God wants you to do it too. Just a tip, if you're gonna eulogize your friends, don't tell them that's what you're doing. Just tell them how God has given them everything that they need and blessed them and answered their very question, are you good enough? Do you have what it takes? Can I get it done? You live with that truth and it will just flow from you as sure as you're breathing every time you interact with somebody, every time. This is what God has intended for you and I to do. It's what he's asked of us to do. So why don't you stand with me? I'm gonna pray before we dismiss. And I'm gonna ask that God give you the courage to live this out this week in powerful ways. God, we ask that you would walk with us from this place, that you would allow us to live these words of Paul out as a church body. And our hope and our prayer is as we, as we love, as we serve, as we believe, as we trust in the master plan, that whether we're installing lag, boats or, lag bolts or making something level, whatever it is that we're doing, Lord, that we would understand it's part of a bigger plan that you are bringing about in place. The mystery of your will has been made known and has been made clear. Lord, would you walk with us this day in the powerful name of Jesus, we all say together and we say, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great week.